Let the scriptures speak for themselves. Let the scriptures speak for themselves. All right, well, we are live. And uh, James, I just want to thank you again uh, publicly for taking the time out of your day to talk with me, some random guy, about uh, the ending of Mark. And uh, I'm excited for this conversation. And um, to start us off, I just wanted to hear a little bit about um, your background and, and how you came to, you know, really, as much as you've studied this, which we'll talk about uh, in this video, I'd love to hear like what sparked your interest and what got you to delve so deep. Uh, you've written an entire book on this topic, as, uh, along with the uh, woman caught in adultery passage. You may have more books that I'm aware, unaware of, but uh, you've definitely delved extremely deeply in this topic. I found your research very helpful in my study in this, and I just love to hear maybe people watching would love to hear like what got you interested and, and uh, led you to ultimately writing your book. Well, I uh, began studying the field of New Testament textual criticism in, in 1986. Uh, my, my first uh, close encounter was with a, a book that was in a book sale, uh, Christoph Lake's The Text of the New Testament, one of the later editions of it. And uh, that, that uh, uh, got, got me uh, investigating the, the, the field in general. And, uh, but, but oftentimes when people look into text, text critical questions, they ask, well, what about the, the, the larger ones? There are very many smaller uh, textual variants and textual contests to consider. But oftentimes it's, it's the story of, of the woman caught in adultery in, in John and, in, and the last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark that often uh, uh, people ask about, well, that's a rather large thing, thing to, to, to uh, decide upon. And uh, many people are not well equipped. Uh, lots of uh, e even even commentators have uh, been, been somewhat misled by by th just things that got passed along in the field. Uh, comments by Bruce Metzger that that told part of the story, but missed uh, important details of the evidence as well. And uh, so so I, so I came to the topic of, of Mark sixteen and twenty in particular. Um, I want, wanted to hold off until I thought that I gathered. Uh, enough of views to, to say, well, I've, I've, I'm well, well, well read on the subject. And beginning in 2007, I began to, to write to write on, on the subject. And uh, right now, my, my book is on Amazon. It's uh, 99 cents. And it's, it, uh, I think, uh, does, does a fairly good job, not, not entirely, but it, but, it, but it focuses on a lot of the misinformation about this passage that is still circulating in in commentaries even in some very well respected commentaries uh J james edwards uh has st still is passing along mistakes that have been handed down in the field so so part of the uh the uh, challenge is is correcting mis misinterpret mis misinterpretations but also just a uh, misinformation that is still being circulated even among so some of the best commentators in the field are still using outdated or simply of inaccurate information. Yeah, no, I um, I think that's so right. And I pulled up your slide where you quote the message in Jerusalem Bible and the SV. And for me, um, your book, James, I think what stands out, um, what you contribute to this uh, debate so well is that there's a lot of misinformation. And I really see you as like a, a whistleblower, if you will, of uh, pointing out your introduction to your book was very helpful. And 
I was quite frankly baffled at how how bad um, some of these truth claims uh, were. Um, I remember the one that stood out um, was that uh, there was wasn't a single shred of evidence for the longer ending of Mark until the medieval uh, times. And I remember reading that from someone who has two uh, graduate degrees um, at Southwestern. And I just thought, this is wild. This is crazy how, how far that this, you know, bad research. And as you point out in the introduction as well, we see this um, in footnotes through various translations of the Bible. And it's, it's very one-sided and skewed. And um, once I got to reading a bunch of books on this topic, including your book, I, I found out just how skewed this really is and has been quite quite shocking to me that, you know, say most manuscripts don't have this or, you know, uh, some of those claims just have stood out to me. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on maybe your role as a whistleblower um, for this issue. And then I'd also love to hear um, what it was like for you stumbling across um, how um, twisted and construed this this thing has been as you started studying it. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, one of, one of the uh, books of a previous generation is the last twelve verses of Mark, uh, vindicated by uh, Dean John Burgeon back in eighteen back in the eighteen seventies, okay. and in his book uh, he quoted uh, several commentators of his day who were getting things wrong, uh, sometimes horribly wrong, mm. uh, making making multiple ref- references to one, one composition as if it was two compositions by two different writers. And uh, Bridgen corrects a lot of things, not that it did a lot of good, because 100 years later, the, the <laughs> United Bible Society's textual apparatus was still making mistakes. But if they had just paid a little bit of attention to Bridgen, he had the information, the data, right before their eyes to say, no, that's not from this author, that's from this author. But a hundred years goes by and Murren's uh, comments are, are still being ignored. Uh, I, I think now by the, the by the fifth edition, they, they finally did uh, uh, correct some things. But the first edition came out that had, had mistakes in it that, that Bergen had already corrected. Hmm. But I think that was part of... People think, well, well, that Bergen, he was just a fundamentalist radical. He, he, he was Bergen, so we'll we'll just set him aside. Mm. Well, uh, again, that's something to watch out for. You know, you, you when you when you send the message that the that that uh, the house is on fire, don't send the clown to tell the story. And and so some people will say, well, these people are just clowning around out there with these corrections. We can we can afford to ignore them. But mm. uh, but 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 it's, so it's important to establish, you know, the the uh, guard guard guardrails against uh, appearing to be uh, just some 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 obsolete uh, fundamentalist or, or some kind of kind of a, a friends that's being represented. So I should probably emphasize from the beginning: I'm not a King James onlyist. I'm not majority text only. I'm not TR only. So 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 folks need need to need to clear, clear themselves of some assumptions that they make. And, and look at the evidence. I think sometimes when you see in, in Bible footnotes, and it just says things like, oh, the earliest manuscripts and some other witnesses don't include Mark 16, 9 20. And that's as far as they go with it and think, well, see, it's already <laughs> been settled by the experts. Uh, we can ignore this passage. Or, or as yeah. I think James White would say, well, it's, it's questioned, and therefore we shouldn't use it like we normally use the Bible. Like the Bible, you know, we know, we know why the Bible was given to, to us, but but since we have doubts about the textual foundations of this passage, we'll just not really treat it like it's the Bible, you know. 
Yeah. The Bible is something we usually use to establish doctrine and so forth. But if you're always putting this in doubt, then you won't use it that way. Sure. And, and I think that's uh, the case, you know, in our day and age. Um, I, I'd really never heard, other than growing up and seeing it in my Bible in brackets and with a very childlike um, naive view, I thought, okay, well, it's in there. It's it's God's Word. And then going to Bible college, we, we really didn't cover the issue um, other than my New Testament professor. I remember him saying that, you know, this isn't um, canonical. Most people reject it along with the uh, woman caught in adultery. And that's the predominant view. And, and I have held that until I came across this passage. I've taught through most of Mark on my YouTube channel. And I got to this passage and, and I knew it was a big deal and I needed to spend a lot of time studying. And once I got to researching, I found that, you know, my my uh, presumptions were pretty wrong. And, and the evidence uh, for this is actually stacks pretty tall. Um, and so I was quite surprised by that. Um, but. James, I'd love to hear um, kind of you uh, walking us through, if you would, your views and understanding of from the time it was written to maybe walking through. And, and of course, some of these things we're not going to have clear answers to, right? We're not going to have hard evidence for. But even so, I'd love to hear your, your views and then kind of walk us through why it was written, um, when it was written in your understanding, and then... Um, from there, I think something that was really helpful in your book as well, you talked a little bit about um, where the text maybe went um, went off, if you would say, where, where the corruption maybe would have been brought in, uh, where this was extracted. And I've heard different things from different authors. Some point to Gnosticism, some point to Egypt. I know you mentioned Egypt in your book, and then down to Eusebius um, as he is Looking through his copies, we get that famous quote where he gives a twofold uh, possible answer to the problem, uh, which has been used, right, uh, to, to say that he was claiming something that I don't think he was claiming. I, I don't know if you would think he was claiming that. But anyways, if you could just walk us through that chronology um, to understand your view of, of what happened and how it happened, uh, that would be, I think, really helpful to give people a, a mental picture of this timeline. Well, we can uh, go back to the, the hypothesis about why is Mark 16, 9 20 in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, in, in, in lectures, uh, lectures, in, in lectures uh, 16 and 17 that I have online in my textual criticism course, uh, there's, there are more details that are given there. But my basic idea, this is the, the hypothesis that, that, that I promote, is that as Mark was writing, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, th this is uh, happening in Rome. Mark's already been the secretary slash gopher for Peter for a while, and he's already collected a good number of Peter's Peter's episodes about about Jesus. But now, you know, Peter's not getting any younger. The church is in danger. Nero is aggressively uh, attacking the the church, and people are asking Peter, Peter, could we get? Can we get this written down on, on parchment or on papyri, uh, the, this record of your recollections about Jesus? And so Peter has already given many of these stories. And uh, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, uh, it doesn't answer all the questions that Matthew or Luke does. We don't, we don't, Peter wasn't around to see the birth of Jesus. And so in, in Mark, we don't have a birth story about Jesus. We mainly see things, not entirely, 
but mainly we see things that happened when Peter or somebody that was a close associate of Peter was, was on the scene. And so Mark sits down to, to make this definitive record of Peter's recollections about Jesus. And as he's doing so, toward the end, he gets to what we know as chapter 16, verse 8, and he's permanently interrupted. Now, does that mean that he, he had to catch a, a ship for Alexandria? Does it mean that he was martyred? We don't know. We don't have videotape, as I like to, mm -hmm. as I like to say. But his colleagues were entrusted with what was left, and they recognized that Mark's text of uh, that, that, that just ends there with the, they, they were, because they were afraid at the end. So that was not a finished manuscript. So what choice do they have? The choice number one would be, well, we can release it like that. Or they could have, or, or we could say, well, choice two would be, let's write our own ending. But there was another choice. I find it very unlikely that Mark would have been in the church at Rome for, for any, any amount of time. And the church would not be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus every year. And so what I think happened is that they took a pre-existing, freestanding record of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And even though it didn't match on like a glove, it was close enough that it would conclude the account. And so Mark 16, 9-20, that was a pre-existing record of those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus by Mark, was blended on to the unfinished, uh, uh, rather the, the otherwise unfinished uh, record that Mark had written. And in that form, it bega they began to make copies of that text. It was only until after this record of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances that the Gospel of Mark, its, its uh, production stage ceased and its, its transmission stage began. That's usually the way that people describe or define uh, what the original text means. For instance, we, we have you know, the book of Proverbs, which is not just the work of one person. You can see in, in chapter 30 and chapter 31, certainly, uh, that's written by other people. And in the Psalms, we have you know, some Psalms by this person, some Psalms by that person. It, uh, it doesn't depend on being a, a work by one person. Even in the book of Romans, there's that one little verse by that, that Tertius throws in there. And at the end of the Gospel of John, there at the end we have this mixture of, uh, we, we know that his testimony is true. And, that, and also that, that, that final verse you know, that, that, that uh, presents, like, like it's another extra little note. And so if in that form, that's how it began, at some point it would reach somebody on the way to Egypt. And that person might say, wait a minute, we don't know this as the Gospel of Mark. We know this as the resurrection. We know this as the recollections of Peter about Jesus. So this extra little thing here, this is not this is not Petrine. And because of that doubt being raised in the Alexandrian transmission line, or what became the Alexandrian transmission line, that was excised. They would rather have just what comes from Peter. And there, there was even a, a scribal um, a ten tendency to say, we only want to keep what comes from the main source. This, this extra little thing from, from Mark is, is, is like a, like a post, postscript or, or something unauthorized. It's not really got the, the, the authority of Peter behind it. And so in the Alexandrian transmission line, uh, pr pretty early in the transmission line, 
that was excised. But in the Alexandrian transmission line, a little, a little later on, uh, they get tired of just stopping the text. They recognize, hey, nobody ends a narrative like this. Now you might mm. you might end a speech like this, and we, we see that being being done in in uh, Plato. But uh, end a narrative like this, it, it's it's unheard of. And so ending a narrative like that with with Gar was 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 unique. And eventually somebody said, yeah, we, 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 we need something more here. We need to wrap, wrap up the narrative. And so somebody wrote what is known as the shorter ending. That is a, a brief uh, way to wrap up the narrative. And we see that in six Greek manuscripts. Now, inversional manuscripts like the Baharic and the Ethiopic, things that, things that were influenced later on by the Alexandrian line, we see oodles and noodles, but we, along with verses 9 to 20. But in Greek, we only have six, six Greek manuscripts that, that support that ending. Now, that ending has made it into the footnotes of some modern translations, even though it's supported by only six manuscripts. And nobody thinks that the shorter ending is original. <laughs> it, it's, it doesn't look marking. It doesn't sound marking. And, so, and yet, it, it is in there. Uh, uh, a man named uh, Salmon... Uh, George Shaman back in the 1800s, uh, after after Westcott and Hort had made their theories about it, he he spoke in the, up and said, "Well, I think the situation here, the, re the reason why they give attention to the shorter ending, even though everybody knows that this is not genuine, it, it's kind of like that. Once upon a time, there was a there was a duke who was having this party, and he invited the plumber, and his his wife was like, why are you inviting the plumber?' And so the, to and so and so she." It invited the milkman, so that when the plumber got to the got to the party, he wouldn't feel really really good about himself. So I think that's kind of the situation that we have when people's the people those who reject Mark sixteen nine to twenty are kind of throwing in the shorter ending, just so the just so the milkman won't just so the uh, the other guy won't feel bad. That's funny. Yeah, the uh, NLT version actually has. Um... It has, of course, through verse eight, and then it has the shorter ending. It has the longer ending, and it also has a. It was my wife's Bible. It's a life application, mm -hmm. um, but it had all of them and the freer. Uh, how would you say that freer? The the freer logan. I think freer I have Logan. the Bible you're talking about. Can you give me just a moment? Yeah. Yeah, I. Like yeah, something like that. That's right. Yeah, let's, let's, we, could, we could probably find a, a useful little detour if we just look up that more closely. Yeah, no, absolutely. The NLT, I think, is one that does need to have its footnotes updated. Yeah, it says, um, the most reliable early manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark end at verse 8. Other manuscripts include various endings to the Gospel. Mm. If you include both the shorter ending and the longer ending, the majority of manuscripts include the longer ending immediately after verse 8. Uh, th this might be an opportune time to use those slides that I had sent earlier that, yeah. that, that may give, give, give people an accurate look. Oftentimes, <laughs> the closest look that people get at the actual manuscripts is you know, some and mm. other. Mm. Well, when you get a little closer to the evidence... It looks more like this. Go ahead and go ahead and throw, throw, throw yeah, throws up. Yeah, I've got, a, got the uh, second slide pulled up. What manuscripts support Mark 16, 9 through 20? Yes. Yeah, we got that pulled up. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got five slides of it. Um, you can maybe throw that on screen, please. Yeah, it's it's on there. Yeah. Okay. So you see, you see the first slide shows, shows some manuscripts there, and those first groups that, that those are old manuscripts. Those are those are unseals or magistrules. Codex Alexandrinus, Codex W, Codex C. And Codex James, D. could you help us understand? Um, these uh, letters and and I think most people would understand each one of these numbers represents a different manuscript. But what are these um, alphabet letters? We've got some English and we've got some Greek here. Um, what yeah, the, uh, the, what are these representative of? Those are just re representative of the way the way that tr traditionally uh, the the individual manuscripts have been identified. You can you can do it by individual numbers too, but traditionally they've also been represented by by individual letters. When they ran out of English letters, they used Greek letters, and then when when Tischendorf discovered Codex Sinaiticus, he gave it a Hebrew letter. Hmm. But all all, all, the, all these letters, these these uh, whether the Greek are or English, represents an unseal manuscript of the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't mean it's just a Mark, but it includes Mark. So those would be some of the, some of the older manuscripts. Now, according to the the message. None of those can have uh, Mark 69 to 20 because, according to the message footnote, um, which which it's amazing that this footnote has lasted so long mm. in the message. When I mean, do you? I, I often think, do you people have no friends? Does nobody <laughs> tell you that your footnote is absurd? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The but message says is contained the, only the in later manuscripts. manuscripts. The others are ministerial manuscripts written. After the the uh, development had to uh, to minuscule script, which which made writing the manuscripts uh, all, all easier, uh, had 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 been made. Hmm. Each and every one of those is an individual uh, echo of of the text that was handed down to them. And on, on the next page, there's a few more. We can see we can see a few more on the on the next slide. Yeah, that's right. Three eighty through eleven sixty nine. Yeah, yeah. And these these are not dates. These are just the they were they were assigned identification numbers in the order generally in, in the order in which they were they were cataloged yeah and james you identify i believe it's 1400 is 60 something total manuscripts that um, speak to this issue that we're talking about is that correct yeah, on, on the next slide there's a few, a few more you can see, you can see that one that, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah and then after that there's there's a few more so when, when you when you add it all up there's something like when, when i made this count a few years ago there's something like 1000 1,642. Yeah. Uh, more could probably be added to that by, by now. Surely, surely more have been, been, been discovered. But but also, there's also, also Mark 16, 9 through 20 was one of a group of 11 uh, passages that was also used in the, the, the lectionaries to uh, celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And as one of those 11, uh, that, that means that even if you just have a copy of, of Luke, or John or Matthew that has the closing chapter, and ha and ha also also has a note about those eleven readings in its margin somewhere. Those copies, even though they don't have text from Mark, could also be added to the list as indirect evidence because for those eleven readings, if you have one, it, it, the, the the logical conclusion would be that that manuscript, when it was in its pristine form, had all eleven of those resurrection readings. Yeah, and James, could you speak to, um, you, you mentioned this in your book, um, 
Could you speak to where Mark uh, 16, 9 through 11 is placed in the lectionary, when they would read it, uh, those two places, and then, um, yeah, maybe the significance of that? Yes, it, it's uh, placed in the uh, 11 Hebrew Theonim collection. It was also read on Ascension Day. Right, that's right. Yeah, which uh, is an important day that you probably don't bring out one of your better texts, not uh, not the one everyone's debating as false, right? If that were the case, hypothetically, on Ascension Day. Uh, yeah, having 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 a text in the lectionary would is a de default recognition that it is authoritative. Right, right. Yeah, I found that uh, very interesting. Um, Ascension Day. I mean, the Ascension of Christ. It's, it's not the resurrection, but I mean, it's it's one of the prominent events of his life. And to me, to have a lectionary reading um, on a passage that say, um, I don't believe it was debated now that I look at the evidence, but say if we take that view that it was debated, it just makes no sense to put that text in, in that date to line up for Christians to be reading that uh, scripture. Or like you said, anywhere um, in a lectionary as a... As, uh, you know, maybe there, I don't know if there are other things outside of Scripture ever used in lectionaries, but um, to be sure, on, on a, a day of ascension celebration, um, that wouldn't be the text that you choose if it was debated. Yeah, Am Ambrose, uh, uh, I, th I think, uh, uses uses it rather pro 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 prominently. Uh, Augustine also uses it repeatedly. And, and right. uh, you can you can tell that even though we don't know exactly what kind of uh, election cycle was being used in each one of those locales, we do see that this was included in in the the the, the church's readings reading text. I think even back in Westcott and Horth's uh, comments on it, they, they list uh, various locales that, that definitely in the elections of the fourth century they they had th this text in the lecture in whatever election cycle they were using. Yeah, that's really interesting. But but then you have all those manuscripts on the flip side that that don't have Mark sixteen nineteen, and you might think, well, when when all that you see is some have it and some don't, or some have it and others don't, uh, you might say, well, well, how many how many Greek manuscripts are there that that, that have it? And uh, I think I think we have a, a slide there that, that shows uh, all 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 those uh, Greek manuscripts uh, that that don't have Mark sixteen nineteen twenty. That's right. I got all three pulled up. <laughs> and you can see that one of them is a medieval manuscript that is a commentary manuscript. That is, it's not a continuous text manuscript, but it will have a piece of mark, and then it'll have some commentary. It has a piece of mark, it has some commentary, and so forth, all the way to the end. And, and that is this is the a, black and white image, James? Uh, yeah, yes, that's, yeah. That, that's a manuscript 304. They, don't, they, ha they haven't even presented, as, as far as I know, a... a, a digital image of it but this is from old microfilm that okay. was uh, from uh, like like when the library library of congress uh sent out people with with some some other, some other uh, organization organizations as well uh sent out people to collect mi microfilms from from uh from mount athos from the national library in, in, in paris from hmm. mount saint saint catherine's monastery uh this is one one that came to light now it was known before that i mean bruce bruce uh excuse me uh, dean 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 bergen uh, mentioned it and uh hort mentioned it but uh it's really not so prominent because there are other manuscripts like him and they're not really that that important in the cosmic scheme of things but because this one doesn't have mark 16 to 20 it's risen to new <laughs> fame uh, yeah. Even though the text itself is pretty Byzantine, 
Hmm. So it'd, it'd be like a lot of manuscripts around it. And what also, does that mean by being Byzantine, James? Could you explain that? Sure. Uh, the Byzantine text is the form of the text that became the prominent text used in the Byzantine Empire. It was also known as the imperial text for a while for that, for that reason. Uh, whereas in other locations, the text continued to be perpetuated, but it generally was more perpetuated in Greek with the translations that were made. In the, the, the Alexandrian manuscripts are a small minority in, in terms of, of number of manuscripts. By far, uh, if, you, if you had 100 manuscripts collected randomly from the Christian world, probably somewhere between 85 to 95 percent, depending on which part of the New Testament you're looking at, would be Byzantine. That's what we see here when we see 1,000 odd, over 1,600 manuscripts being, oh, that looks like a Byzantine manuscript. Now, keep in mind that this, this means that every Greek manuscript still has an ancestry. So just because a manuscript is Byzantine, that doesn't make it unimportant. Mm. But also, when you see the Alexandrian manuscripts, you get to see a different branch of the tree. So when you see this huge number, that doesn't always mean, well, that settles the question. When you see a lot of fruit on a tree, uh, well, let me give you an illustration. I think this is also used in my, in my lecture series. That if, if suppose somebody came came to an orchard, and you know that uh, the orchard has to be one certain kind of fruit, but you also know this this person's visited who was able to graft, and so he and so so you see tree 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 tree, or, or, or to use an even better illustration, you see a tree, and you see lots of lemons on the tree, but one branch has oranges on it. Well, what kind of tree is it? Well, if you look at which branch has the most fruit on it, there's, there's one branch that's in the sunlight and has just, just a luck, luck fell its way, and it's got lots and lots of lemons on that, that, that branch. More lemons than there are oranges, by far. Hmm. And yet, that one branch that has lemons, it's, it's uh, closer to the base of the tree. And then there's another branch over there that's a, a different kind of, 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 of fruit is on that tree. So you can't just say, well, let's go with the majority all the time because there are there some places, going back to a non-illustration, going back to the manuscripts, when you look at manuscripts, there's, there's some places where the text is close, closely divided and it's not 80% versus 15%. In Revelation... It's a different equation because you only have about 350 manuscripts of Revelation, and sometimes it's really, really close. So you have to, first of all, when you come to the text, you can't just say, well, the majority rules because, well, the majority isn't always a, a great majority, for one thing. In, in the Gospels, it's, it's generally always more than 85%, but sometimes those, there's this kind of reading and, and that kind of reading. And there's a, there's a close call even even within the Byzantine text itself. The Byzantine text divides on, in some cases. That's why even though in the uh, majority text of the, the Byzantine text, sometimes you'll find uh, this, which is the majority uh, readings, you'll find uh, sub-readings in the margin and also in the uh, the uh, uh, Farstad, Hodgins and Farstad majority text, 
you won't always see exactly the same reading in the text. There, there are some differences. Mm. That's because of, of differences in, in their approach to, to groups of manuscripts, which, which are, are subdivided into, into group, group, groups that can clearly be, be considered one voice, and then there's echoes of that voice. Uh, one, one, one position would be, well, a manuscript's a manuscript, but the other position would be, but not all manuscripts are created equal. And when you can tell that this group of manuscripts has something in common, uh, for, for instance, um, sometimes there are commentary manuscripts that contain the text of a gospel, and those all are basically, basically the echoes of one person in the Middle Ages making a commentary. Mm. If, if, so, so if the manuscripts are all, all have a text accompanied by the same commentary, and they all generally have the same readings, except for a scribe has made the same mistake, you can boil those down and assign different weights to say, well, okay, that's a, that's a manuscript, but because it boils down to being an echo of an earlier source, we can give it a, a lighter weight than we, would, than we would to something that's centuries and centuries earlier that doesn't have a line of descent that, that's uh, so, so, so late like that one. So part of, part of the picture is we have to assign weight to manuscripts. And that's, that, that's, uh, that's the basis on which uh, Westcott and Hort back in 1881 assigned uh, prodigious weight to Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, especially where they agree. Mm-hmm. And so in, in, in the world of Westcott and Hort, when they agree, the reading of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus should generally be accepted almost categorically. There were some exceptions, but they were very, pretty pretty rare. Mm. And so that's why they put ex- excessive weight onto Vaticanus and onto Sinaiticus. I think we have a, another slide there that, yeah. that shows a that shows Sinaiticus because although you don't see it in the commentaries, and I don't, I don't think it's even mentioned in the, the Nestle Allen text, these two manuscripts are pretty quirky at the end of Mark. Mm. Yeah, I've got you it have, pulled up. Of, us, of uh, Codex, Codex Vaticanus. Yeah, I've got the one pulled up. Um, uh, slide number eight, where you you scan in the um, what would be the the rest of the ending that there's extra yes. room for. Yes, in Vaticanus, uh, it ends, and you can also see this online. Vaticanus manuscript is online at the Vatican Library. At the at the in, in the middle column, the text of Book sixteen eight comes to a close. A little further down is the closing title. Usually the closing title is at the end of the book and not just the beginning. But uh, but if you were to start writing Mark 16, 9 20, right where Mark 16, 8 ends, and if you were to compress your lettering slightly, which, which scribes knew, knew how to do, you can see the same phenomenon in, in pages of Sinaiticus. What, what I've done here is I, I took uh, letters from the same page in the scribe's handwriting and pasted them onto the page, and that's what you see after there, the end of, uh, on, on, on the right-hand side, with, with uh, Mark 16, 9-20, is written in the scribe's own handwriting in the blank space. Now, this is memorial space, but uh, keep in mind that memorial space did not have to be exact. We see in Codex L, and we see in Codex Delta, uh, memorial space is, is left for, for the story of the woman called in adultery. So memorial space didn't have to be, you know, measured out to the centimeter just giving a kind of, kind of a salute to say i recall that there was something more here in another source that's all the scribe was doing but to see that's all the scribe was doing well what that means is 
in the early manuscript of Vaticanus, we have a testimony that goes two ways. First, the testimony from the exemplar that says, there's, there's nothing else here, but also the testimony from the scribe that says, I remember seeing this when there was something else here mm. in, 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 another, in another manuscript. Yeah, and I think so, this is um, interesting, James. Uh, sorry, I'm not trying to interrupt you. Because um, one of the things I commonly read against um, the longer ending of Mark is that, you know, these texts just are undeniable evidence that uh, the longer ending uh, was not, shouldn't have been in there. And then when we pull up these texts and look at them, um, the picture, uh, as they say, it says a thousand words, uh, quite literally, maybe a thousand letters. But um, it's not that, you know, it's it's ended in the third column or in, in the uh, second column with space and then uh, the Gospel of Luke starts. But rather, like you said, we have this memorial space. And uh, for me, um, on, on both sides of the issue, sometimes people present certain evidences as undeniable. But uh, in the case against the longer ending of Mark, um, this is one of the obviously two main texts, Codex Vaticanus, along with Codex Sinaiticus, that this is presented as the undeniable truth of the fact that, you know, the longer ending of Mark was was added in. It shouldn't have been in there. This text just all it says is that the longer ending of Mark uh, isn't in there. But like you're saying is it may say that in a footnote, but when we pull up the actual document that uh, is in question here, um, we have a lot of space here. We have what you're calling memorial space. And um, as I read in your book, um, this isn't common. We see this in separating of types of books, say between the Psalms or between prophetic literature, or between the Testaments. Um, but we, we have this and this isn't the last gospel. So we couldn't say um, that, uh, you know, of course, after this, we have Luke and John. So we can't say, well, this is the last gospel. Then it's switching to other church letters, it's it's in the middle of a category. Uh, so for me, that's very interesting as strong evidence actually not against the longer ending, but for the longer ending of Mark. Uh, uh, yes, uh, following up on that, uh, those, those blank spaces in the Old Testament, uh, the, their purposes are crystal clear why they occurred. We see at the beginning of Psalms where the format changes from three columns per page to two columns per page, obviously there's going to be a gap there because of this because of this change in from three columns to two columns. The, the ruling itself had to change. And when we see one scribe's work meet another scribe's work, obviously the, the leftover space is going to cause a gap because you can't go go back and make a line up line up exactly without without saying, well, one scribe's work meeting another scribe's work. If they're working separately, that that, that just won't happen. And then also at the end of, of Daniel, which is where, where the Old Testament ends in, in Vaticanus, of, co of course there's going to be a, a blank space there, where because Matthew will have to, to start on a, a, fre a fresh page. So so contrary to what Dead Wallace claims in his book on perspectives on the ending of Mark, um, the reasons why there are gaps in the Old Testament portions are crystal clear. There's, there's no question about it. But here we have a gap that occurs at the end of Mark, and it occurs uniquely at the end of Mark. There's no, there's, there's no such blank column, an entire blank column, at the end of the Gospels, at the end of Acts, at the end of the, at the end of the Pauline, Pauline epistles. Uh, we just don't don't see anything approaching this. What we do see is a, a scribe being very conservative with his parchment. He's using 
every 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 column he can use. Mm. Now keep in mind that when you ended a book, you would start at the top of the next column. That's what we see the scribe do consistently. Mm. Except here. Here at the end of Mark, he left this blank space. So there's nothing unusual about seeing a manuscript that has blank space at the end of a book. There is something unusual about seeing blank space and another blank column in Sinaiticus. Mm -hmm. This is the only place where we see this anywhere in the Codex. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So um, this first one on slide seven, um, this is Codex Vaticanus. Is that correct? I can't see the slides. Oh, right? it's okay. Um, the one where you have the text filled in uh, that we've been talking about. Um, yeah, it's okay. So Vaticanus. And then I'd also like to talk about um, Sinaiticus here in slide seven. You mentioned it being a replacement page, a, a sewn in leaf. And you talk about that uh, some in your book. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So Vaticanus, um, I guess to give some closing thoughts, um, please correct me if I'm wrong. But the way I'm understanding you is that this is, um, if anything, it's not conclusive that the longer ending of Mark should be there. Um, maybe say at worst for someone who believes in the longer ending of Mark. But at best, it, it's maybe a memorial um, in, in honor of the longer ending of Mark um, expecting that, 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 to be there. exactly what, what I interpret this to be. That, uh, that the scribe, like, like I said a few minutes ago, uh, recognized, I remember seeing a manuscript where there was more here but it's not in my master copy that I'm using today. So maybe if, if I could just in, indulge in a little bit, bit of hypothesis, maybe the scribe is thinking, I, I'm not making this manuscript for myself. It's going to go somewhere else. Hmm. Maybe the next guy that has this manuscript in his hands, maybe he'll want that there. Hmm. Maybe he won't. Mm -hmm. I'll leave it up to him. And thus, <laughs> and thus you have them, this memorial space, which, which, uh, with just a little bit of compression, fits the text exactly. Mm. And what does this have to do with, um, if you're familiar, if you're not, I don't know the answer to this, but where these two um, were written and maybe the uh, tradition that they were wrapped around in their culture that would lead them to leave this blank or not fill it in? Well, in terms, in terms of where they were made, we don't know exactly where Vaticanus was made. Okay. Sinaiticus... <clears throat> Sinaiticus looks like it was made at Caesarea. Now, possibly, uh, scribes didn't always stay in one place. A scribe from, from Egypt could easily find his way to Caesarea. Or a master copy from Alexandria, uh, from Egypt, could find its way to Egypt. In fact, we have, we have the case of, of origin in the early 200s of, of you know, being first located in Egypt and then making his way to Caesarea. So, so it's it's not uh, unlikely at all to have by the 300s uh, manuscripts at Caesarea that would descend from a collection from Egypt. Because okay. in, in Egypt we have we have the the uh, the, the early Sahidic version, and its its uh, affinities are certainly with the Alexandrian text. Okay, gotcha. No, that that's uh, very helpful. One of the books I was reading spoke of. Um, the extraction of the longer ending of Mark being a very uh, local thing that was going on. And then maybe when Eusebius or Jerome speak of it, 
um, you know, it's specific to their area being the first mention we have of, of something like this going on in, in uh, early church history. But um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I've got Sinaiticus pulled up. And as I mentioned, um, you talk about this replacement page. Um, it's quite clear from this picture, but could you speak a, a little bit on that and, and talk about the uh, letters per column in these replacement pages? Even, even though if you pick up a, a UBS textual apparatus and look through the textual apparatus in, in, all, in all its detail, or in the Nestle Island textual apparatus, I don't think you will see any acknowledgement that this page of the manuscript is a replacement page. In other words, the, the, the main copyist, the one who's writing the pages that come before this and come after it, he's not the one who is responsible for this four-page page or, or folio. Uh, it was somebody else. Probably the the supervisor or the uh, the diothrotes has the guy who, who who proofreads the manuscript. Okay. Uh, he comes he comes to what the main scribe had made on on the, these four pages, and somewhere in those four pages there's something that makes him say, "Ay ay ay, we we <laughs> we got to redo this." Mm. And so the task of redoing those four pages falls to him. What's probably happened is. As, as, as much as you, people would, would assume it's got something to do with the ending of Mark, it looks more like it has something to do with the text of Luke, mm. just because of the way that it, it comes out uh, with the amount of letters per column when you actually go through the trouble of counting how many letters per column there are. Because on the pages of Luke, uh, the text is drastically, I mean drastically, uh, condensed. I mean, com com the letters are compressed, so the, the, the copyist is able to, to fit more letters onto each line, and he does this consistently throughout Luke, which would imply that what the main copyist did was leave something out. And mm -hmm. so now the proofreader, the corrector, has to write on the same amount of space the amount of text that was already there, plus the amount that the main scribe accidentally left out. So when you look at that text in Luke, all those columns are stuffed. Mm. They're, they're cramped. It's, it's crowded like sardine letters. Mm. Yeah, what, but, what I'm seeing here is um, the, the ending of Mark, it's, it's around the 600s. Um, and then Mark, uh, that's Mark 14, Mark 15's in the 500s and very, very low 600s. And then um, with the transition to Mark to Luke, we've got, 500 uh, letters and then uh, 37 with the ending of that column and then Luke starting on the next page, which is common for books, but we didn't see that in Vaticanus. Now we're looking at Sinaiticus and it's more of a normal where it ends in one column and they start the next column. And we've got uh, 681, 670, then 700, 680. Like I said, the, the letter per line is significantly um, increase compared to say Mark 15 in the 500s. Yeah, and uh, and this requires thinking. But what I think happened is when the proofreader is doing his redoing these pages, he realizes the challenge is going to be the text of Luke. That's where the mistakes were made. That's where the hard part of fitting everything in is going to be. After he does the work of making sure that the end of Luke on his on his, the pages that he's making will interlock smoothly with the next page that the, the manuscript has made, then he goes back to write the text of Mark because no 
problem that the, the hard part is in, in Luke. But as he's writing Mark, he forgets what he's doing and just kind of instinctively starts to write in compressed lettering again. If you look at those, those numbers, you'll see that in, in the, third, in the th third column, after you get along a little bit, it all of a sudden shoots back up. Hmm. Yeah, in, um, in the ending of Mark or... Uh, we right, have right, 680 right, right, right before mark 16 starts yeah. okay yeah the 600s right we've got 592 then 593 then 604 605 uh, uh, I, I wish i had it in front of me is there any way you can put the slide in front of me um i don't know that there is so we've got mark 14 uh 54 we've got 630 650 640 and then 700 yeah 700 yeah. he's still in mark 16 there that's that's like that, 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 that's Mark 15 ending in Mark 16 one there. Yeah, that's that's the I think the ending of 14 going to 15 and then um, towards uh, in uh, Mark 15 going to 16. We've got 590, 590, 600, 600. And then so, so, so again, I'm sorry, sorry. I don't have a slide in front of me. Oh, no, you're fine. So we've got um, uh, Mark 15. Um, in those four columns, we've got 592, 593, 604, 605. And then um, in the uh, bottom left uh, corner, that uh, four column block, we have 550. So it's gone down. And then the 37, the ending of that. And then uh, 680. Can you, can you just read me the numbers of col column per column? Yeah. Starting from the beginning. Yeah, so so Mark fourteen uh, fifty four. We've got six uh, thirty five, six hundred fifty, six thirty nine, seven hundred seven. Okay, stop there. Okay. There, the, the seven hundred there. That's yeah. before the end of Mark. He's still in Mark fifteen as of writing that. I, I, what I suspect is that he was so he had gotten a little bit used to writing in condensed lettering, and suddenly began writing in condensed lettering in Mark where he didn't need to. Mm. But then as he goes down he, and, and, and also writes in, in chapter 16, verse 1, he makes a mistake. This is the corrector who makes mm. a mistake. He absolutely omits uh, most of Mark 16, verse 1. Then he mm. needs to think, th then he comes to his senses and says, wait a minute, what am I doing? I've, I'm, I'm condensing stuff I don't need to condense. Uh, and it's also interesting that you could, you could uh, if he had kept on using condensed lettering, uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20 would have fit on the remaining columns. But, but, but he gets to the point at the end of that, 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 that column, and he realizes, oops, now when he turns the page, he needs to stretch out his lettering or else he's going to leave a blank column. Mm. Well, this scribe, this, the, uh, the, the Diothotes, he doesn't want to leave a blank column. He wants to make sure there's not a blank column. And so after writing Luke's text, in order to avoid leaving a blank column before he comes to the text of Luke, he stretches out his lettering. That's why the next, that's why even though he, on, on average, he writes 600, 630 columns, let, excuse me, letters per column. In the next column, he's really stretching out his letters and it comes to a total of what is it 552 yeah that's correct yeah yeah and the reason why he's writing out these letters so so 
stretched out in such expanded form. At one point, he even uh, uncontracts the name of Jesus, which scribes usually usually they would they would they would contract the name of Jesus. It was a sacred name, mm. but for this purpose, he stretches out the name of Jesus, so I have more space used. So I have letters to put at the top of the next column, and thus he reaches the top of the next column with more letters to write. Although he wrote at his normal rate, he would have come to the end of that column and left the next column blank. Gotcha. Yeah, because we only have 37 letters on that um, next column. And if we look at the preceding column, as you just mentioned, um, it's a little bit less. He could have easily put those 37. That would have came out to, say, uh, 589 uh, letters, which would be less than many of the other columns. So then we'd have this whole column blank, which is completely against how you do things as recording the Bible uh, for those scribes. So he had to stretch it out. Yeah. So, so, so the Diothotes, um, he, he, he realizes the mis because of the mistake he's made, he's, he's going to end up with less space than, than he, he thought he would have because of his, he's, he's, as he's writing this out. He stretches, he stretches out his lettering. Then on this column, he has to compress his lettering. Excuse me. Excuse me. On uh, the the fourth, can you count those out so I get the right the column? Right? Yeah, the the third column, uh, Luke one one. He begins to compress. It has six hundred eighty one, and then six seventy two in the fourth column. Is that which one you're talking about? Are you talking about? You, you, you'll be able to see it on on the on the page, right? So 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 you, you can figure it out. Uh, viewers can figure it out. But you can see that on this column, before the column where Mark ends. He stretched out his lettering. Mm -hmm. Then he puts what he's got, what he, the letters he's, he's conserved, he then puts at the top of there. And that's why we don't see a blank column in, in Sinaiticus. So he's clearly thinking about how he should end the Gospel of Mark. And this question is on his mind. Why does he want to make sure that he doesn't have a blank column? That question is that, that now again we can't read his mind literally, but it looks like he's aware of a problem with the ending of Mark, hmm. which would mean just like what we saw in Vaticanus, they were aware even though the master copies they were using didn't have verses nine to twenty. In their minds, Mark sixteen nine was was not a stranger. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, you're absolutely right, uh, James, and I think. Like I said, what stood out to me is what's often cited as either a complete rejection or a complete, a complete uh, excuse me, lack of knowledge of the longer ending. I don't see that when I look at these pages. Uh, um, like like you said, we can't read the minds of the scribes, and uh, they didn't give us a note to say why they were doing what they were doing. Boy, that would have been helpful. But, um, you know, we can infer that uh, it seems they were both aware of this longer ending, sort of completely write it off as these two um, having no bearing on that, I, I think is a bit of a stretch. Um, uh, one, one more thing to point out with, with Sinaiticus. If you go to the Codex Sinaiticus website and uh, zoom in on the the Coronis, uh, the, the fancy design work, they're, they're the Animarch 16.8. It's much more emphatic than this than the copyist average average uh, Coronis. It's, uh, it uses two colors. It uh, fills an entire line. These are things that he didn't normally do. Right, there's some green in there. I think I remember seeing that, right? It's an elaborate decoration in there. 
I don't recall any green, but but okay. definitely, definitely it, it might look like green depending on your computer settings. But but def <laughs> definitely uh, a combination of red and there's normal ink. Okay, gotcha. Maybe thinking of uh, something else, but, but yeah. Spe speaking of those designs, um, at the end of one of the mosaic books, I think it's Deuteronomy. If you compare the uh, the decorative designs of the, the copyist of Vaticanus in 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 the, the mosaic books and this design um they're very similar if i think it's been described by, by by millen and skeet if if it doesn't mean if it doesn't imply identity of of, of scribes then it, at least it involves the identity of the of the same school of thought mm. right right uh for same, both the of these schools they, they receive the same training at the same place mm -hmm. uh, that was the, the idea to leave the longer ending of mark out and and try and Fill that in. Is that what uh, you're no, saying? Just, just in regard to the the, the the kind of Cronus that was made. All for the artwork. Uh, Cronus is like uh, the decorative ending. Is that correct? Uh, just the decorative design or arabesque. Although not, that doesn't really really help. <laughs> okay, gotcha. No, that's helpful. Um, James, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about. Um, so we've talked about these two um, codexes. And these are 4th century, around 300s um, A.D. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about um, Tatian and his uh, Diatessaron. And I'd love to talk about Eusebius, um, uh, excuse me, uh, Tatian Irenaeus and his quote, his reference to Mark's ending. And then maybe a little bit about Eusebius and Jerome. Uh, yes. Uh, when we look at these, these manuscripts that we've seen, we, we didn't see... Uh... Alexandrinus, or Codex D, or Codex C, or I don't think we've seen W yet, but, uh, but those, those are manuscripts that we see, and oftentimes in the footnotes, uh, that's all you see is references to the manuscripts. I don't think at, at any point, any, anywhere in the NIV or, or NL, NLT, ESV, I don't think anywhere do we see, do we see references to patristic evidence, because when we think, well, let's follow the earliest evidence, in this case... The earliest evidence doesn't come from the manuscripts. It's much earlier, but it's from the writings of the patristic writers. So, uh, yeah, we, we, I, I really wish that the, the footnote writers would uh, take the time to say, uh, it, it would make a big difference on people's impression if they were to say, but it's quoted by, by Irenaeus in the year 180, more than a century before these two early manuscripts. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that would t tend to change the equation quite a bit, I think, if they would find a way to spell Irenaeus and put his name in the footnotes. Yeah, no, I, I think that's such a good point. And, and uh, you know, like you're saying, the way it's read in so many um, asterisks or obelisks or little notes and footnotes, it says the way it, it presents the data seems to say that the earliest evidence says that, uh, you know, points to this not being there. But actually, it's the earliest manuscripts. And, you know, it's very uncommon for manuscripts to last this long. And much less to have, you know, we don't have a single manuscript that dates, um, you know, in full and this robustness all the way back to, you know, the first century. And so I'm uh, fully with you on that. You know, maybe um, it's true that the biggest, most robust, earliest manuscripts um, do not contain this, uh, referring to these two manuscripts. They're, it's almost like a half truth, but, but the ultimate um, earliest evidence um, like you're saying, tells quite a different story um, as, as uh, 
yeah, we're talking Irenaeus and and uh, Tatian. These guys, they they all uh, reference this passage. And so I think as a maybe an uninformed Bible reader, you get to this place in your Bible, you say, oh, well, the earliest evidence, maybe even though it doesn't say that, they think that. And, and of course, as you've pointed out, both in your book and we spoke of earlier, um, there are misleading footnotes in Bibles at times um, that just present false information. But even the ones that present more truthful information, it's usually half truth, uh, which um, for me was kind of bothersome, to say the least. Yes. So um, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, Tatian. I was reading earlier today in his uh, Diatessaron, and for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's it's a compilation of all four of the Gospels mixed in together. And I saw multiple uh, references. Maybe I'll be able to pull this up, but... He, um, he mentions a few particular verses that we can only find um, in the longer ending of Mark. And for me, um, it was really, um, really quite surprising how much uh, this was quoted. I've got to, if that's okay with you, James, I'll just read through these really quick. Well, if, if, if we could, um, there's another physician writer that, that I think needs some focus because of how how his evidence has been misused hmm. and that is a uh, clement clement of alexandria yeah no that would be great because uh and, I, and i'm reading here from the uh bruce metzger's textual commentary and if you've ever read any other commentaries on the gospel of mark or if you've ever read ever heard any lectures by by dan wallace about, about the gospel of mark then this is probably going to be a pretty pretty familiar because oodles and oodles of commentary is simply Parrot Bruce Metzger and think that they've done some kind of textual critical work when they haven't. Yeah. But he says that uh, Clement of Alexandria and Origen show no knowledge of the existence of these verses, referring mm -hmm. to Mark 16, 19, 20. Well, of course, the impression is going to be in, in most cases, well, wow, wow, if, if uh, Clement of Alexandria didn't, didn't quote this, then it probably wasn't in his manuscript, right? But, uh, but in real life, uh, when you look at out Clement's text and his his citations of the Gospel of Mark, um, Clement didn't use very many uh, parts of Mark, Mark at all. Uh, perhaps you have that, that, the, the slide about Clement that I made for you. Yeah, I've got it pulled up already. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can you can see and and uh, if anybody has any other data to add to this, uh, feel feel free. But using the data that I was able to 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 accumulate. Uh, and look, looking at, uh, and by the way, uh, uh, many of uh, Cozart, I think, did, did, did some analysis rather recently and found that you know, when, when you look at how much Mark actually it quotes from Mark, it's not that much. Yeah, you've got 1.3% here. Yeah he, yeah, he uses Matthew 10 quite a bit hmm. in, in, a, in a composition called Who is the Rich Man Who Shall We Save? But outside of chapter 10, we don't see any quotations from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. We don't see anything from chapter 11 and chapter 12. We don't see anything from chapter 15. We don't see anything from chapter 15. So so saying Clement uh, shows no knowledge of the existence of these verses, well, that's true of more than half the chapters in Mark. And those chapters are much more than 20 verses each, like chapter 16. So the, the use of that nugget of, of nothing is nothing, as far, as far as its real weight goes toward resolving this question. And we can even look into the details of whether or not Origen and, and Clement use exactly nothing, or whether there might be some, some hints of something. For instance, uh, Origen, 
uh, there's a what one of his one of his uh, writings that was uh, not released directly by him, but by some friends of his or, or fa fans of his uh, mm. later on. In Philokalia, uh, part five, uh, there was a reference that sure sounds like a reference to Mark 16, uh, verses uh, 15 through 20. So, uh, so that might be a, a statement that really, really needs to be re-examined altogether. Hmm. Yeah, that that was another thing I continually found in research was um, this argument from silence to say that uh, because uh, a certain church father or influential theologian in the early centuries didn't mention a verse, therefore they, you know, if they didn't mention the longer ending, they thought it shouldn't be in the scriptures. And like you're saying here, if we take apart every church father, unless they mentioned, you know, Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation, we could make that same logic could lead us to think they didn't believe in huge chunks of the Bible. It's just a foolish argument. I think it's a really big straw man. And um, to me, it just, it's frustrating to, to stretch the evidence or lack of evidence to, to that conclusion. Uh, and sometimes, too, the evidence is just misrepresented. For, for instance, another claim from Metzger that gets repeated all the time is that the original forms of the Eusebian sections drawn up by Ammonius make no provision for numbering sections of the text after 16.8. Ammonius is not responsible for what are known as the Ammonian sections. And, uh, and uh, there's no need to, to go through the details of this because Dean Bergman has already done it 100 years ago Unfortunately, they completely ignored his, his evidence, but his data shows very, very clearly uh, Ammonius is not a witness one way or the other. Hmm. And what's the name of that book, uh, James? Uh, uh, Burin's book was uh, The Last 12 Verses of Mark. It's, uh, it's more than 100 years old, so it's, it's, it's online. Oh, you can great. easily download it. And look in the, look in the uh, appendices. Uh, one of the appendices is just on this subject. So Bergen must have done a lot. <laughs> A lot yeah. of digging for for just just for the appendices of his, yeah. of his book. Yeah, but, but that's again, awesome. have, have most people paid attention to Bergen? Not really. Mm. He made many statements that you, you can tell from the contrary claims that, that other other more recent writers have made. They never read Bergen. Mm. They never read Bergen. Mm. So they don't know. Yeah, yeah. So um, for uh, so we talked about Clement. Um, do you want to speak a little bit on uh, Tatian on the Diatestron? I think that would be helpful. Yes. Yes, uh, Tatian was, was an author. Uh, now, in, in later years, uh, because he was a vegetarian and didn't th th thought that the becoming a Christ was so imminent that there was no point in getting married, uh, later on he was kind of looked on kind of, uh, we are not sure if you're Orthodox or not. Uh, he was even condemned by some. Mm. But uh, Tatian at the time, though, was a, an important writer. Who made what was called the Diatestron? The Diatestron was uh, the text of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but kind of smashed together so it wouldn't be exclusively Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, but we would have all four Gospels, but combined in one continuous narrative. So when so when Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all say the same thing, the Diatestron would generally generally only say at one time. And then you had the text that was unique to each to each one of the Gospels, but all in one continuous narrative, as if the whole Gospel story was being told uh, simultaneously in one uninterrupted narrative. That's what the Diatestron was was supposed to be. Uh, later on, because Diatest because uh, Tatian was regarded as a, as a heretic, uh, copies were not made anymore, and we have very 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 few. Uh, 
diatessonic uh, echoes of the diatessaron. For, for instance, we would say, oh, this person was quoting from the diatessaron, but that will be that person's writing, that won't be the diatessaron itself. Mm. But there is a an Arabic text of the of the of the diatessaron, but it has considerable influence from what was called the Syriac Peshitta, a version from the late late, th late 300s or so. And so you have that in the in the east, east. In the west, you have numerous diatessaronic witnesses, but the, some of them are pretty late. But an earlier reference is to uh, the, the what was called Codex Faldensis, which in the Gospels was a diatessaronic text. Uh, a, a man named Victor, uh, not 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 the uh, other. Well, we'll just call him Victor. But but Victor, the Bishop Victor of, of Capua. Uh, preserved this this manuscript, but uh, he was unsure about the doctrinal propriety of it, and so he preserved the text that he had found. But was, you know, scratch that. He preserved this form of the text, it was the format, but he replaced the text itself with the form of the Vulgate that was known to him. Hmm. So, in its format and the arrangement of the text, and the arrangement of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in Codex Faldensis, we have that format. But as far as the content, that's the Vulgate. But what you what you need to do to find if a, if, a, if a manuscript is influenced by this stuff over here or this stuff over here, well, look at the format and see how it's arranged. Where it's the same, then you have confirmation both from the East and from the West. And in this case, when we look at Mark 16, 9 through 20, and how it's arranged in, in the text of the Diatessaron in Faldensis, and in the Arabic Diatessaron, they're not exactly the same, but they're pretty much the same. Mm. And so, and so, there's evidence from 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 uh, th those two Diatessaronic witnesses that Tatian's Diatessaron contained Mark sixteen nine to twenty. But, that, but there's also another very important uh, Diatessaronic witness, which, which was the commentary made by Ephraim uh, Cyrus. Uh, this was a, a Syriac a Syriac writer in the in the three hundreds, about about, about three sixty or so. And he wrote a commentary on the Diatessaron, and he quotes from Mark 16, 9-20. No, not, not the whole passage, but you can see, see my book for the, for the, exact, the exact details of it. But Ephraim, uh, in, in Syriac, using, writing a commentary on the Diatessaron, uses material from Mark 16, 9-20. So there's, there's another confirmation, and those, those three together are pretty strong evidence that Tatians, that the Tatians I test on in the 100s contained Mark 16, 9-20. Yeah. And of course, um, shortly after that, we have the, the quote from Irenaeus in which he explicit, I think it's the most explicit reference we have to the longer ending of Mark that's uh, in the second century, right? Um, where he... Yes, you, you could go a little bit earlier to a writing called the Epistula Apostolorum, which was probably written around 150, and then rewritten around 180 because the claim was that Jesus, Jesus, it presents Jesus saying, I'm going to come back at a certain time. And mm -hmm. then then that time came and Jesus hadn't come back. So they said, okay, in the second edition, I'm coming back at this time. <laughs> and it still happens to this day. Yes, yeah, it still happens. That's the same sort of thing. People don't learn. But anyway, in the, in the Epistola Apostolorum, um, and it, it's a cumulative case. It's not like super obvious, but uh, Robert Stein was one, one scholar who who recognized that in the Epistle of Apostolorum, the framework of the story matches up with 
what a person would get from Mark 16, 9 through 11, but not what one would get when we use something else. Mm, that's interesting. So the epistle of Hasdalorum is, is one possible reference used even, even earlier. Mm. There's also the evidence from St. From Justin, Justin, Justin the Martyr, in a, about the year 160 or so. And uh, in, in his first apology, uh, chapter 45, he uses when he's describing uh, the, the events of, of what, what happened before the before the ascension, uh, he uses wording that is very similar to what we see in Mark sixteen twenty, hmm. and and Hort raised a doubt about that, but uh, Hort was working without Tatian's uh, without 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 the Arabic diatessaron. When the Arabic diatessaron was was released, uh, scholars right away, such as Harris and and Chase, realized that Hort's objection was was answered. Unfortunately, Metzger, when he when he kind of parrots what what what, what Hort says, uh, he doesn't mention. Oh, by the way, these other guys recognized that Hort's objection was was wiped away once Siaska's diatessaron came onto the scene, mm. and so the the doubt is perpetuated, even though it was answered back in the eighteen eighties. Mm, that's interesting. But, 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 but coming to Irenaeus, uh, the the uh, in Irenaeus's uh, book against heresies, uh, book three. Now, at one point, as he's writing against heresy, Irenaeus mentions who's in charge of the church at Rome, and that's how we can get a pretty good idea of the date of when he's writing. But he says, as he's describing the contents of the Gospel of Mark, he says, also towards the conclusion of his Gospel, Mark says, so then, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sits on the right hand of God. And so this is a writer who's working in about the year 180, uh, and he's making sure that he's writing aggressively against against heretics. And, and I think a person in that situation would use what he considered the best text. Mm. That's right. Also, in uh, this is confirmed in in the margin in in manuscript 72, and in manuscript 1582. Uh, both times in Greek, we see this note that says Irenaeus, who was near the time of the apostles. And his work against heresies in book three cites this from Mark. Hmm. So the question had, had apparently come up somewhere along the line, but is answered clearly in the, that marginalia in 1582 and, uh, and in Codex uh, 72 in Greek. Yeah, it's good. So, that, so that's Irenaeus uh, using his manuscript, which if you figure Mark is writing about the, the 60s, Irenaeus is writing about the, the 180s, Assuming that this wasn't a new, a very new manuscript that Ivanaeus was using, we're talking about a witness that is about 100 years from 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 the writing of the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, yeah, which is you know close to two centuries before either of these uh, codexes that are are the main source, right? That are easily so uh, often cited. Closer than Sinaiticus, more than a century before before Vaticanus. Okay, so where would you, how would you date those uh, two, James, if you would, for us? Yeah. I would put uh, Vaticanus a little earlier than Sinaiticus. I think uh, Vaticanus, you don't have the Eusebian canons, that you don't have in, any section numbers like you see Eusebius developed. So that's either in a, in a realm that is not, that is not Eusebius's realm, but, but also the divisions that we do see are not like any, anything that would say, made anywhere that, 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 that is not Egypt. So I would say Vatican is probably around 325. In Sinaiticus, there are a few quirks that the uh, the writer made, or, or the scribe made, where 
there are indications that he had his mind on Caesarea. Uh, J. Randall Harris made a, a famous observation. Where uh, the, the scribe uh, is, is writing the, the word uh, Petrita, uh, that's what he's supposed to write, referring to the homeland of Jesus. We're in the text where, where Jesus is, is, is saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. But instead of writing Petrita, he writes Antipatris, which is the name of a, a city uh, not too far away. Hmm. And so it, it, it's kind of like if a, now this will only work in Britain, but 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 uh, Harris said it, it, it's like if a scribe said, I come not to, he, he, he was trying to write from, from Shakespeare, I, hmm. I come not to, 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 to uh, bury Caesar. But instead of writing bury Caesar, he wrote, I I come I come to bury Caesar. No, no, scratch that. I'm getting it wrong. I I come to Banbury Caesar, not to praise him. Uh. Now Banbury is a town that was along a certain road that was close to Cambridge. So the idea would be that you know he's he's got this town or this place on his mind that, that's not too far away from him. And also in the, in the Book of Acts, also at one point uh, he he does the same the same sort of thing. And not to dive too too deep into the into the the weeds there but uh, but but twice the scribe seems to have caesarea on his mind or the area around caesarea on his mind mm. james for um for this kind of i'd love to hear maybe some some closing thoughts or, or maybe if there's some things you think we you know is if there's anything else that is significant you'd like to point out um uh, yeah, yes uh, de definitely uh when, when it comes to the patristic evidence and, and again manuscripts had had a way if they were written on papyrus there was one place they would survive, and that was Egypt. So yeah. oftentimes we think of, well, if it's, a, if it's a, an older manuscript, we should, we should go that way and tr trust the papyrus. But that meant, that, that almost automatically means rejecting the text was, that was in used everywhere else because everywhere else, papyrus would naturally rot away. The community level, the, the, the level of, of moisture in the, in the atmosphere was simply too high for papyrus, for papyrus to last very long, relatively, in places that didn't have the, 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 the dry climate of Egypt. That's why when we look for papyri, we go to Egypt. That's where we find them. Mm. It's very rare to find one anywhere else. One, one's been, uh, a papyrus cover has been found in Ireland, but it was a very unusual uh, condition. Mm. But in, in, in the patristic writers, we, we do have other evidence. When you see a, a quotation in a patristic writing and you, you go through all the steps of verifying it, uh, that is like a, an echo of the manuscript that was in the hands of these writers at that time. And when you look at the, if you, if you find, you'll find some writings that, that will try to say, well, yes, sure, you've got hundreds of manuscripts, but those are all old Byzantine manuscripts. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's say, let's make the cutoff point of 500, the year 500, or, or, or 486, when there is a Greek, excuse me, when there was a Roman Empire, and there was a uh, emperor was was on the throne of Rome. If we just make that the cutoff point, maybe add in a few others from from a little bit later. Uh, I think you have a slide that I sent of a uh, Roman era patristic writers who used material from Mark sixteen ninety to twenty. Is it Sinai uh, GR two twelve? Nope, that's not it. One of the uh... patristic writers of the Roman Empire. Okay. Let's see. I don't know that I 
have that. Maybe I do. It would be like around around number ten. Um, we've got the fifteen eighty two twelve ten, and then we've got uh, the shorter ending with the Egypt tradition, Egyptian do tradition. Have, do you have the Roman era? I don't think it's uh, on here. Uh, I don't think I remember seeing anything like that. Well, that's disappointing. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll just repeat to you. You, you could say um, they're not all as crystal clear as 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 are all as, as lengthy as the others. But uh, you could take a from the from the earliest point, uh, Epistula Apostolorum, and then Justin Martyr. That's about the year one sixty. Notation about the year 170. Irenaeus, this is still in the second century, uh, about the year 180. Then Tertullian, Hippolytus, the, the Didascalia Apostolorum, uh, Vincentius at the, at the uh, Seventh Council of Carthage, the uh, Latin work called the Divi Baptismate. I can also look in the Old Latin Capitulum, the, the summaries chapter by chapter of, of, of how they would put, how, how they would format the, the, the sections of the book also there was a pagan writer named hierocles and uh, he he uh, appears to use mark 16 uh, 17 through 18 kind of making fun of the christians to say if if you want to really have a contest for who should be leading your church you should have you should have one of them uh volunteer to to drink drink, drink a deadly drug and, yeah. and the one who drink, drinks the most should be, be the winner <laughs> yeah and then, then after had a, a syriac writer Aphrodite's kind of an interesting witness from from about the time of of, of uh, Vaticanus. Aphrodite, now uh, Hierocles is from even earlier than Vaticanus. He'd be the the early three hundreds. Hmm. But Aphrodite was Syriac, a Syriac writer, and uh, he is using Mark sixteen seventeen in, in his demonstration number one very clearly. Also in the in the composition called uh, Acts of Pilate, uh, the the passage is used. Also Eusebius's uh, uh, correspondent Marinus. When he asks his question to, to Eusebius, it's clear that Mark 69 is in the text that Marinus is using. Mm. We see Eusebius use it. And by the way, Eusebius's comments are much more extensive than what a person might get if they just look at, at, at Bruce Metzger's comments, which is pretty much what you'll get in most commentaries, because people are just looking at Metzger's commentary and saying what, saying what he says and say, yeah, that makes sense. I'll, I'll find a way to re reword that. They put down Metzger and they start to write something. Oftentimes stretching out in ridiculous ways but yeah. fortunately for us uh that problem has been solved by roger pierce roger mm. pierce has gone through the trouble of hiring people to translate the full text of mm. eusebius's uh, composition ad marinum and it is in this book which by the way can you you can get for free online oh that's great eusebius of caesarea and you will learn when you read this book you will see in eusebius's comments not only does he not reject Mark 16, 19, 20, he tells Marinus, this is how the passage should be pronounced when you read it, mm -hmm. which implies reading it in church. So there's no appearance of contradiction with what Matthew says. And later on, as he's writing on a different subject, once again, he refers to Mark 69 on his own and says, as it appears in some copies, and then after then a little later, later on, he says, as Mark tells us that, that, that Mary Magdalene had, had seven demons cast out of her, as, as Mark tells us, and that time he doesn't even ha have a little qualification. 
Yeah, um, that's these right. details are not, not said by Matthew, and so they're not said by the hundreds of commentators who are just parroting. Excuse me, is not said by, by, by Metzger, and and because Metzger doesn't give those details, all the parrots don't say it either because mm. they've just been parroting what Metzger's been saying in his textual commentary. So by all means, pick up a series of Caesarea uh, Gospel Problems and Solutions because there's a lot more to the story which Metzger somehow never got to repeating. Yeah, I read a book by uh, uh, Nicholas P. Lund um, arguing for the ending of Mark, and he actually um, brings that very thing up, and he goes through both Eusebius and then Jerome, who parrots Eusebius, and he gives the full text. And, um, you know, he's making a case study. He says, if someone believed this, this is how they deal with the problem. But he seems to say, you know, how we understand the text as being authoritative, that everything that was passed down by the pious is good for use. This is how we do it. And as you already mentioned, he tells him how to say it. He says, say it like this and then pause and then continue speaking um, so that yeah. no one gets the dates confused over that uh, issue. So I found that really interesting because both Eusebius and Jerome are, are so often the kings of, of the fathers who are quoted to, against this text. Yes, and in, in, in that case, uh, it, it seems like Eusebius and Jerome are, are both reporting this, but as D.C. Parker uh, acknowledged in the, in the Living Text of the Gospels, uh, D.C. Parker says, says, Jerome's testimony is worthless mm. because Jerome is simply recycling the work of, of Eusebius. You can, kind of, you can almost picture Jerome sitting with a copy of Eusebius' composition at Mar <laughs> Marinus on, on, on his desk, Deciding how much of this he should leave out and how much he should con condense it, because he's, he's because everything's everything he's, he's passing on here to Hedibia, he's putting into Latin what what Eusebius had written, written in Greek, so he just boils it down because he's no we're, we're not going to go down that path anyway, so let's go down this path and, and hold this path. So yeah, that's right. So Jerome is is very very clearly just recycling Eusebius, and so often I see commentaries where they, they treat them like like. They have nothing to do with each other when they clearly do. Also, in, in the case of Jerome, um, we mentioned the Freologion before. When Jerome is talking about the Freologion in about the year 417 in, in at, at, against, against the Pelagians, or to the Pelagians, um, he mentions that he found the, 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 the person who's embedded in the composition, found the Freologion in several copies, especially the Greek codices. And a person might say, wait a minute, over here, to, 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 when he's writing to Hedibia, he says it's hardly ever there. And here, it, when he's writing this, this uh, in, in 417, how can he say that this reading is in, in the Freologion? How, how can he say the Freologion is there, especially in Greek copies? Well, there's an easy answer, because he was just recycling Eusebius, mm -hmm. doing what he said he usually did, what he said he often did. If you look at his epistle 75, he says, yeah, sometimes... I just repeat what people said before me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, he says that explicitly. I was reading a note earlier um, when he prefaces the four Gospels um, when he's writing to the, the Pope at the time. And um, he mentions, he says, uh, he says, for if we are to pin our faith to the Latin text, he's speaking of when he was writing the Vulgate. He says it is for our opponents to tell us which. Uh, for there are almost as many forms of text as there are of copies. And if, on the other hand, we are to glean the truth from a comparison of many, 
Uh, why not go back to the original Greek and correct the mistakes introduced by inaccurate translators and the blundering alterations of confident but ignorant critics and further all that has been inserted or changed by copyists. He says more sleep than awake. But he goes on to say, um, you know, speak of this. And what I find interesting is that the Vulgate, you know, it does contain the longer ending of Mark. So um, it seemed, you know, it seems speculation to say that. Yeah, let's just show you how seriously Jerome was taking what Eusebius had said before. Yeah. He's, 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 he knows that he's going to go with Jerome's solution, the one that says, well, here's how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but also, uh, I don't want to uh, to to, to uh, ignore the the, the other writers. Uh, the, the, whoever made the Freologion, of course, the Freologion appears between um, Mark sixteen fourteen and Mark sixteen fifteen. Uh, contrary to what Daniel Wallace had said, it is not a longer ending. That is not something that could could survive as a freestanding ending. Uh, so, any T readers, uh, please get that idea idea out of your heads. Uh, the, the footnote there in the NET annotation is uh, talking nonsense. Uh, the Fear Logion is not a different ending. It is an interpolation between verse 14 and verse 15. But mm -hmm. also, there's a Fortunatianus, and, and also if you, if you use the NET, uh, the annotator of the NET gets, gets some of his manuscripts mixed up, and, uh, sometimes, and on one occasion he treats one manuscript as if it's two manuscripts as if like, uh, like like this is part of the manuscript this is the other part of the manuscript but it really it's, it's one manuscript being being double referenced so th that should be sorted out hmm. but also uh around the year three three fifty uh, that's about the time of Sinaiticus uh Fortunatianus uh, wrote, wrote a, La a Latin commentary which is, which has only recently been been uh, published and uh, Fortunatianus mentions that uh Mark uh talks about the the ascension uh, the the ascension also, a little bit after that, Ambrose of Milan, like I mentioned before, Palladius of Brataria. Uh, there's also the Cleomontanus catalog, which is simply a list of the links, uh, our, our line, measure, line measurements, uh, stickoid of, of each gospel. Ephraim Cyrus, that I mentioned before, uh, uses Mark 16, 19, 20, uses parts of, parts of it in his, in his commentary on the, on the Didesteron. There's also a work called uh, Apostolic Const Constitutions about the year 380. And uh, Epiphanius, the uh, apologist on, on the island of, of, of uh, well, an island, let's say. Epiphanius, I think, I think, Crete. Augustine, not only does Augustine quote uh, Mark 16, 19, 20 extensively, but he also quotes his Greek manuscripts. Uh, there's also a group of what are called uh, apocryphal works or, or uh, pseudepigraphical works called the Lucian Acts or Lucian Acts. Uh, again, he has references to the contents of Mark 16 and 20. The Doctrine of Adai, uh, and, and kind of a more, more significant than you, than you might think, uh, uses it. And, and the books of Pelagius, Pelagius uses it. Philostorius uh, uses it. Uh, Esnick of Golb, and it, it's interesting that you, you'll see in Metzger's work, and you'll see in the parrots of Metzger, uh, references to the Arme Armenian manuscripts. But what I don't see in, in Metzger's comments or, or in any of the other uh, comments, uh, of, of later writers, later commentators, uh, references to Esnick of Golb. Uh, Esnick of Golb was an Armenian writer in the 400s, far before any of the, the major Armenian manuscripts. And Armenian of Golb, uh, in his writings, uh, uses Mark 16, 17 through 18. Hmm. So, so uh, also, uh, we already mentioned covered, covered Jerome. You can look in the, uh, in, in the writings of John Chrysostom, 
Macarius Magnes, the, the guy who's who's responding to to the the, the works of of, of Hierocles, uh, he uses the passage and does, doesn't say anything about uh, some manuscripts is there, some is not. He uses a, a an entirely different line. Marius Mercator, not well known, but he still counts. Marcus Eremita also, and that implies the uh, Marcus was was in, in in the land of Israel, and that shows us the the range geographically of where the the passage was attested. It's not just that it's in this one locale. And, and here I think that, that that illustration of the tree uh, comes into place because we don't see it just in one locale. When we come to the shorter ending, we see that coming up in the one locale. When we look at the actual manuscripts of the shorter ending, when we, we, the, 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 the earlier ones, we see the text being formatted on the page the same way. Uh, when, when, when the longer ending of Mark is presented, it doesn't just start at verse 9, it starts in verse 8 mm. and goes down from there. Mm. But, that's, but, that, but that presentation is very rare. We see it in the, uh, the Greek Sahidic Lectionary 1601, and we see it, I believe, in a... I move this book here. We, we, we see it in a 099, one of, one of those small fragments. So when we look at the notes in Codex L, the notes in Greek Sahidic Lectionary 1602... And we see the format in, in Codex 044 and those fragments, they're very closely connected. So the, the, what, what the, that, that tells us the story. And the story is, although Mark 16, 9 through 20 was not in Egypt early on, it was practically everywhere else. We mm -hmm. see it in the writings of Patrick in Ireland. We see it with Peter's crucial August. We see it in, in, in Israel. We, we see it in what is now Turkey. We see it in Armenia. We see it in Syria. So we see a very wide attestation in favor of Mark 16, 9 to 20. But you don't see any of that if you don't see the patristic writers. Mm -hmm. And in the footnotes and in many of the commentaries, the patristic writers are utterly ignored. But if you take a look to examine the evidence in whole, you'll, you'll see this mountain of evidence in favor of Mark 16, 9 to 20. Yeah. No, that's good. Thank you for that, uh, James. I think that's so important. And like you said, I think looking at some of the, the earliest um, evidence is so essential to this debate and conversation um, for the ability to come to the right answer because the early evidence is uh, all on the same page as to the uh, canonicity of, of the longer ending of Mark. I wouldn't say all. Uh, there, there are some ver there's, there's some versional evidence. For instance, the uh, in, in the Syriac uh, translations, there's a ver very strong uh, evidence from from the Peshitta, which uh, I, I believe is is late late three hundreds, and then developed a little more towards standardization in the four hundreds. Okay. And there's also the uh, the uh, Hockley Syriac, and the version known as the uh, well, well, now now it's called the the Palestinian Aramaic uh, Syriac. Well, well. Palestinian Aramaic, but there's also the uh, the uh, Sinaitic Syriac, which is one translation, represented by one one manuscript. The the mm -hmm. the, uh, the Sinaitic Syriac is, is kind of kind of refers to a version, but also to the one manuscript that re represents it. It's a manuscript that is to this to this, to this day uh, uh, housed at uh, Saint Saint Catherine's Monastery on Mount, on, on Mount Sinai. But it also has a, a relative called called the Curatonian Syriac, which was discovered before it in, in about 1858, I think. But they're clearly connected. 
but in in the in the mark as seen in the Synodic Syriac, it ends at sixteen eight, whereas in the Curitonian Syriac, there's hardly any text to mark extant in, in existence, in other words. But the part that is uh, includes uh, at least marks sixteen, seventeen, and, and so forth. Hmm. So, so there is one Syriac reference, uh, which means that the amount, the uh, or the proportion of Syriac evidence would be 99.9 manuscripts plus the Patristic evidence. But you do have uh, the Synodic Syriac in there. Okay, yeah, I was thinking more of like the um, the first two centuries. Like, is there anything you can think of um, that's strong evidence against um, the longer ending of Mark, James? Uh, nothing direct. Uh, I don't think there's any question expressed about uh, the, the, the legitimacy uh, of Mark 16:9-20 until you get past Justin, past Tatian, past Epistle Apostolorum, um, past the Baptismate, uh, and you, you have to drift into a little a little after uh, Hierocles uh, to Eusebius of Caesarea. I think Eusebius is the first individual anywhere uh, to draw the passage in, into question to any degree. And Eusebius, it seems, it looks like at, at the time he wrote Ad Marinus, Ad Marinum, it looks like he was perfectly willing to accept the passage because yeah. when somebody asks you a question about it, uh, the way to say, reject it, throw it out, get rid of it, <laughs> is not to say, well, this is how you pronounce it to ensure yeah. the misimpression. <laughs> when you're in the church reading yeah, this passage, funny. this is how it should be done. Yeah, that's right. That's now, funny. No, it's possible that, you, that, that the, it's possible that Eusebius later on, if he, if he made his uh, canons, his uh, cross-reference system for the Gospels, it's possible that he, as he was making that cross-reference system, he may have changed his mind and mm -hmm. said, "Well, it's really, it's really difficult to uh, bring all this together in an easy, e easy uh, cross-reference system that, like the one I've been making." So he might have just simplified his work or left it un unfinished. Uh, we simply don't know. Yeah, yeah. In the the former quote of Eusebius is the one most commonly used uh, against um, the longer ending. So. Yeah, no, that's, I'm glad you bring that up. Well, James, is there anything else you can think of? Um, what What would you leave, maybe people listening to this, what would you encourage them to do for the average Joe, you know, who's just reading their Bible and they stumble across double brackets or something? What, what would you encourage them with um, in this regard? Um, well, one, th one thing would be to uh, recognize when you're reading a parrot. Uh, because some some commentaries, uh, some some lectures that you might find online, are simply repeating things that have already been said that should have been corrected a long time ago, but they never knew better, and so they kept on perpetuating it. For instance, mm -hmm. uh, in in the earlier editions of the UBS text, it said that some Ethiopic copies stop at Mark sixteen eight, and even Eugene Nita's translate translator's guide that that claim was per perpetuated mm -hmm. uh, in nineteen eighty. Uh, Metzger did a uh, finished a, a detailed study on the Ethiopic text because he had done a double check, thinking, "Do those abbreviations really mean what we think they should mean?" That we read in the 1800s about Ethiopic copies. So when he double checked it, he found, uh, "No, we've been understanding this all wrong." He looked. He went back to the actual Ethiopic evidence and found that every single one of those Ethiopic manuscripts. Includes Mark sixteen nine to twenty, mm. 
There were a lot that also included the shorter ending between 16.8 and 69, but that's not the same as a manuscript that just stops the text at Mark 16.8. So Metzger wrote a very detailed study and published it in 1980, but uh, to this day, in copies of the text of the New Testament, written by Bruce Metzger, and in the latest edition, I think, uh, edited by, by Bart Ehrman, but you can find on one page the claim that, no, from 1980 that Metzger made, the claim that all Ethiopic, all Ethiopic copies uh, include Mark 16-20, but on another page of the same book. <laughs> Forty years after 1980, mm. you will still find the claim that and some Ethiopic copies mock ends in 1608. Uh, <laughs> that's that's funny. funny. Yeah, yeah. It, it is kind of funny, but it's also kind of sad. Yeah, funny but, in a pitiful kind of way, right? For the, yeah. for the group think that's in play to to, to be jostled into, uh, will you please pay attention? Mm. So, yeah. so one thing would be to, to recognize, uh, like I said, recognize parents. If you're, if you're reading along and you're reading something like, like like Metzger, where where it says uh, the the Armenian and the, the the Jordan Georgian, we have copies of both that, that don't don't include this passage. Well, keep in mind though, but most people don't realize this, but the old Georgian was translated from the old Armenian. So mm. having these two is, is like it's like, it's, it's like saying not only does the voice say this, but also the echo of the voice. <laughs> Right. As, as if that's going to mean something. Right, right. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, I think watching out for periods is, is a, a good piece of advice. Um, not only um, with, you know, things people may agree with or things they may disagree with, um, not only with modern commentators, also even with church fathers and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, that's that's a good piece of advice. Yeah. No, no doubt. So. All right. So, um what, tell me what I'm looking at here, James, with this longer ending of uh, of Mark here. Uh, well, this slide. Excuse is, me, uh, John. <laughs> yes, this, 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 this slide shows the end of John, and um, I don't think you'll see this at the Codex Sinaiticus uh, website. But when T.C. Skeet was looking into the question, he arranged for uh, the end of John to be uh, examined under ultraviolet light, and this is what he saw: uh, the same thing that uh, Tischendorf. Uh, Claim that claim claim that he saw, but of course Tischendorf couldn't couldn't verify it because he didn't have the opportunity to do digital work. Did digital uh, work. But what we see here is that the main scribe uh, initially ended the Gospel of John one verse early, uh, made a little uh, ornamental design, and stopped the text there. Mm -hmm. uh, the the implication is that he just just wanted to preserve what he thought of as the main author's work. But then uh, someone, either the copyist or the supervisor of the copyist, uh, changed the scribe's mind, and he came back, erased that decorative design, and included the final verse. But this is a sort of a, a vestige or a remnant of the custom in, in that particular transmission line of trying to preserve only the work of the main producer of the text. So if you see John as this is just the book of John, not John's community, then you get rid of the final verse. And if you see John, excuse me, if you, if you see Mark as this is the recollections of, of Peter, not Mark, then you would excise 
about 1619-20. Meanwhile, in the community where it was first written to in Rome and throughout all the area around Rome and farther along throughout all the Roman Empire except Egypt, Mark 16, 9 through 20 was used with authority. Mm, that's good. Yeah, and um, as you're saying, um, there's many places in the Bible where there's uh, what, what I was taught in seminary is called a light editorial hand where we get these uh, helpful uh, sentences or verses and uh, this is another example, but I think that's helpful, James, and it sheds light on, you know, maybe uh, another very um, verifiable possibility of of um, what went into people's minds, why they would have extracted the, those last verses, because um, we see this in other places. Just, uh, just, just obelize, like saying, not from the original hand, and then the next generation drops. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Which might, or, or, and if it was uh, two or three or four generations long, that, that might explain why it takes so long until Eusebius to get any, anybody asking a question about it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Um, makes sense. Yeah, makes sense in light of, you know, how they chose. Um, they didn't like um, books that were named after uh, people that didn't actually write the book, say so certain books that didn't make it into the canon and stuff. They didn't like pseudographical writers. And so I could see the same strict mindset to say, okay, well, this isn't, you know, doesn't fit in line with the very author uh, of having written it himself or intended to write it himself. And so uh, I could see the same thinking that would go into uh, pulling that out. That's good. Yeah, it, um, uh... It, it, it created a very abrupt narrative, but it didn't stay stay abrupt for very long because then they made this shorter ending. <laughs> but, the, but the short ending is basically another way of saying the Egyptian ending because that's that's where its support comes from. Mm. Mm. But also, uh, I recommend reading my book. I, I'm wor I'm working on a uh, newly updated edition. Hopefully, that'll be done before the end of the year. Awesome. So uh, you can just, just keep your eyes on 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 the uh, Kindle store at Amazon, and ho hopefully, I will be able to uh, complete that. Yeah, that's awesome. That that's where I found your book, James, on Amazon, and and uh, read it um through Kindle, and and found it very helpful, and and uh, found it done very well, and and um thought the table of contents, everything worked great. I could bounce around where I needed to, and and uh, thought it was a good reading experience. So, yep, that's where I would point people to. You could check them out on Amazon. Does it also have a physical copy, or is it mainly digital? That's it. Well, it's only 99 cents. So, yeah. So uh, 99 keep cents. Slow. Right now it's, it's just digital only. It's really generous. If folks, if, if folks don't have a Kindle, uh, there you go. If folks don't have a Kindle, uh, they can go to academia.edu and, and find a, a printable text over there. Yep. I'll pull that up here. Yep. Uh, there's a link here on the screen. If you'd like to follow that at academia.edu. Uh, also, there's the Amazon.com way to check that out. Um, James, thanks so much for taking time to have this conversation. I, I'm sure some people, uh, it'll be something they've not really ever thought about. And some people, I'm sure they know a whole lot about it. But uh, I appreciate your time and, and the conversation. And I really do appreciate your book uh, as as uh, it did help to blow the whistle, so to speak, on, on a lot of parrot research uh quote unquote, right? Um, that's not really research at all. It's just people repeating things they haven't sought out for themselves. So I found your book very helpful in lots of ways, but that was one of the main ways. It was uh, the introduction. I love it. It was very eye-opening. And um, I know 
I've seen other people on YouTube have, have uh, read your book and it's been uh, very uh, paradigm altering for them as well. So um, thank you so much for, for the time you've put into this. I think it's really important stuff that we're covering. Uh, I want to make one, one more point, which was just that uh, you often see the claim that asterisks and oboli often accompany this section. I think Craig Evans, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, Dan Wallace have all perpetuated this claim. Double check your manuscripts. Um, in the course of doing this research, I, I dug, dug into them. And in, ev in every case, there were the kind of asterisks or the kind of marks that simply refer to a footnote, which mean nothing more than what a footnote number means in our, in our modern books. But when, when it comes to, when people picture asterisks, like, like in, a, in, a, in a line or in a column, uh, that's when we have an indication that some, somebody was either doing something to indicate something that, that, that uh, was connected to the lectionary, or in some cases really was uh, connected to uh, casting, casting doubt on the passage. Um, in no case did these these asterisks or marks beside Mark 69 to 20 have anything to do with casting doubt on the passage. In every single case, every single case, Dan Wallace, um, th these these were not text critically relevant. These either were, had something to do with the the election cycle, and they have to have the same marks which uh, other passages would have, or they were connected to a note that was accompanying. The the, the the passage, uh, a, a comment made, made by some marginality maker. In no case is there just nothing but a man, a, 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 an asterisk that, that, that is text critically significant. And, and there are also uh, misrepresentations mis, uh, of, of uh, how, how broad the, the notes that accompany Mark 6, 9, 20 mean in the, in the family one uh, group, small group of manuscripts and how significant they are. Uh, they often follow the the wording of Metzger, which leads people away from where the from where the evidence actually leads. But, but for those that are interested in the details, they, they can uh, uh, find them uh, hopefully in, in, in my book. So uh, thank you. Yeah, awesome. Well, James, thank you so much again, and uh, yeah, look forward to. Um, I'm sure I'll be reading your book whenever I get around to the uh, woman caught in adultery. I'll uh, read your treatment of that subject as well, but. Again, I appreciate you coming on and taking time to um, talk through this issue, and I hope it's a, a blessing to everyone that listens to it on, on YouTube and and, um, and podcast. Hopefully, it'll open up to their, their uh, mind to your work, but not only your work, but uh, to maybe some of the intricacies of, of dealing with uh, these text-critical issues and uh, doing it with a, a truly open mind to, to look at the evidence. So... Thank you.